This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Bing Brunton, who's an associate professor in the Department of Biology at University of Washington. Thank you so much for letting me interview you, Bing. It's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. I would love to start off uh, by asking how and when uh, did you first become interested in studying the brain? It's a great question. So um, I actually decided to become a neuroscientist because I really like math. Um, when I was an undergraduate, um, my, I did a bunch of research in molecular biophysics and I was studying microbiology, um, which was great. Like I thought, I thought I wanted to go to grad school and continue being essentially a structural, um, structural molecular biology, biophysics type person, right? But I, at some point, fell in love with a branch of mathematics called dynamical systems, which is the study of how things change in time. And I just really liked it. Um, it was a really interesting type of math because I knew I was interested in biology. And what is biology except the spectacular ability of living things to change in time? Um, but at the time, the, the, the kind of research I was doing in biophysics wasn't really, I mean, you can do it in dynamical systems, but that's not what I was doing at the time. So when I arrived in graduate school um, at Princeton, I was a first year graduate student. And we were doing rotations, like when, like one is supposed to do in graduate school. Uh, so just exploring different things. I, I was pretty sure I was going to end up in in this this one lab that was that was that was doing um, microbiology. But there was this talk uh, that had free pizza, and so I went. So a bit of advice: anytime there's free pizza in the talk, just go to the talk. So I went because it's free pizza. Uh, I didn't even know who was talking, but it turned out it was this uh, this neuroscientist Carlos Brody who became my my PhD advisor, and the, and he just gave this talk, I was so excited about dynamical systems and using dynamical systems to model the brain, to model decision-making. Um, and he just like, um, I, I felt like we spoke the same language. And so afterwards I went up and talked to him. We talked for a little while. I decided to give it a try and do a rotation um, in, in Carlos's lab and kind of just never left. Um, kind of like, you know, I like I take in classes in neuroscience as an undergraduate, but I never thought about studying it and research and so kind of just caught up on some of the basics and figured it out from there. Yeah. So in short, I'm a neuroscientist because I like math. That's a very interesting um, trajectory into neuroscience. But did you feel um, neuroscience compared to other fields of biology um, involved more math, especially like the version systems? I was doing? It totally was. Yeah. Like that was the version of it I really liked. Um, I like I liked modeling and I liked modeling using dynamical systems. Um, and so there's a lot of like other types of uh, quantitative biology, like bioinformatics, a lot of genome level studies, proteomics, structural biology of, um, of proteins, for example. All of those fields use uh, are quite quantitative, and there's modern versions of it are you know very very data heavy. Um, but the particular type of math I liked was very well suited for analyzing neural activity and population activity and um, you know, large, large populations of, of, of brain and behavior of the kind of recordings that we can do now. And so it was, it's not unique. It's just like, that was the version that, that I really liked doing. Um, so and of course the brain is cool, right? Like no one can dispute that the brain is cool, but I, I didn't get into it because, because I liked the brain. I got into it because the people I met doing brain science were using the kind of math that I wanted to use. That's amazing. Um, and can you, could you tell us a little bit more about um, what topics you focused on during your uh, PhD? Yeah, so my PhD with Carlos was focused on um, 
decision-making under uncertainty. Um, so how it is that you, you, you make decisions when the evidence that you are using to make those decisions is not perfect, but is noisy or uncertain. Were there certain highlights during your PhD that made you decide you wanted to go down the road of academia? And did you have an idea what you wanted to do after? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I, I like, I mean, I'm happy to share these stories, um, but in part because I feel like I just, I've been just extraordinarily fortunate in my trajectory. I, I take, I take no credit. I did not not have a plan. So I don't recommend you doing what I do. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you what happened with me. It's just like kind of a series of things that happened. Um, I'm super happy where I am and I feel very, very fortunate and privileged to be doing what I'm doing now. But it really was a series of things that just, that just, that just happened. Um, and I think I was very lucky at several stages of just being in the place, in the right place at the right time and having just coincidentally met the right people who led me here. So I don't think this is, it's not like, it's not like I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Um, I know that the, the multiverse, um, the multiverse movies are very, very trendy now. There are lots of different versions of, of multiverse movies, and so I guess using that analogy, I think there's a very, very close by multiverse versions of me that are doing something really different that are not what I'm doing here. Um, it could have easily gone a different way, and I think I would have been. There's like, there's a lot of other things I can imagine myself having been pretty happy doing, even if I'm also very happy doing what I'm doing now. And going back to the topic of the decision making, could you explain, you know, in a simple way, how you use like dynamical systems or other quantitative tools to study how the brain um, does decision making? Yeah, so we we have models uh, we built for my PhD. We we built a series of um, behavioral paradigms um, that I deployed to train a bunch of rats, and then eventually also got some human subjects to do uh, to test their ability to to do decision making under uncertainty. And so we then we built some mathematical models of them. And the bulk of my actual work during my PhD ended up coding up simulations that implemented these models mm -hmm. and, and figuring out which one of these models is most consistent with the with the evidence of the behavioral results from the humans and the rats. So that was that was mostly what I actually ended up doing. Um, and those models were dynamical systems models. Um, so ended up having to do um, to do lots of simulations. That's really cool. And it could could you see how it like close the loop in terms of um, helping you design better experiments to understand decision making in the brain? Yeah, so it posed a bunch of hypotheses, right? I think in my mind, um, that is one of the one of the ways that we use modeling in neuroscience. And of course, that's the piece of it that I now focus on. So I feel like sometimes I need to um, articulate to myself as well as others the role of modeling. The role of modeling, in my mind, is not to just write an equation that recapitulates biological observations. In fact, I think the role of modeling is often to ignore biological observations strategically, because we can't model every single detail that we know to be true. We can't model like every single biophysical detail or every ion channel, or sometimes even not, we can't even model every neuron, right? Nor do we actually want to. It's this exercise of strategically ignoring biological observations until we have the simplest version of something that actually teaches us something. So that what does it mean to understand, right? Like you can't see me, but I'm doing like quotation marks with my arms right now. Like what does it mean to understand what the brain does at a certain level? And that understanding is not necessarily at the level of molecular or cellular detail that we can actually measure. Right, um, and so in my mind, the, the role of modeling in this case is to test ideas that sometimes are experimentally difficult or impossible to test. We can do it in models, 
And then the other role of modeling is to synthesize experiments that perhaps are at different scales of description or cannot be performed simultaneously. Mm -hmm. right? So for example, you have one behavior and then maybe like in one experiment, you can do a pharmacological manipulation. Another one you can do like calcium imaging and the third one you can do um, some kind of high, high throughput um, genomic screen of some kind or whatever, right? And they're fundamentally asking the same question, but they're very different experiments uh, with their own conclusions. And so you might want to build one model that is able to synthesize all of those different observations and then put them into a common framework so we can kind of tie them together and understand how the results make sense in the context of each other, right? Um, so that's sort of what I feel like my job usually is now in being the computational modeling person in these collaborations is figuring out, okay, what are all the observations we have? What are experiments that we can do? What are experiments that we wish we could do, but we can't do because they're too expensive or too time consuming? And what can we model that is the simplest version of something that's actually interesting? Um, and so that involves a lot of, a lot of talking to our collaborators, because I really like understanding all the experimental details so that I understand the limitations of the experiments. Um, I don't like proposing experiments that are impossible. I have to understand like, okay, what are the pain points? What are the bottlenecks? What takes forever, right? Like let's, let's, let's propose experiments that are doable um, so that so people, so papers can be written <laughs> and the PhDs can, can be handed and graduated. Um, people can move on and get other jobs, right? Like this is a part of our, our role, not only as scientists who study things about nature, but as, but as community members, as mentors, um, as, as peers of each other to support our, each other to move on to whatever it is that we want to do next, right? And so that's very, it's a very practical consideration, um, building models and uh, to serve not only answering those scientific questions, but also making it possible to, to accelerate science so that we're not just exhaustively trying every single thing, right? Maybe guiding that process a little bit so that we can test the most plausible hypotheses or the most likely hypotheses instead of just all of the ones we can possibly test. Talking about moving on to the next thing in your career, how was your transition to your postdoc and uh, what were your interests and how did you choose what you wanted to work on next? That's a great, that's a great question. Another, another example of I'm happy to share with anyone who asks, um, including all of you listening, um, what I did, but it's not, it's, it was not a very deliberate process. I know I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are significantly more deliberate in how they did this. And I like, I think you should, you should hear what they did, but I'll tell you what I did. Um, I, when I graduated with my PhD, I was pregnant with our second kid. Um, so I had, our, our son was born when I was like a third year graduate student. Um, and then I was, I was pregnant with our daughter when I was, when I defended. And then we took summer off, kind of just like did a road trip. It was really fun. Drove around with our kid, our dog, and, you know, me with another one on the way. When I arrived for my postdoc, um, I had all along been really interested in doing a combination of theory experiments, which is what I did for my PhD, right? And I was pretty good at both of them, and I really liked doing both of them. But I showed up, and I, my, my postdoc advisor knew, like he, he knew I was pregnant. But I, well, I show up, and I was seven months pregnant, um, and he looked at me up and down, and, and Tom is like just a fantastic human being, right? And he looked me up and down, and was like, hmm, we better stick to theory for a little while. <laughs> It's like, yes, that, that sounds like a really good idea, just logistically speaking, right? Like I can do theory right now, but maybe maybe doing a bunch of more experiments is not what I'm gonna be doing for the next little while. 
But then we started doing more and more theory and things just kind of took off. Um, and I did more and more math and just really liked it. You know, wrote a couple of math papers and then got collaborators who were so generous as to share their experiments with me. Um, and that also- Can you just tell for yeah, listeners ahead. where you did your postdoc and who you did it with? Oh, um, so I went to the University of Washington in Seattle and I was co-advised by, uh, by Tom Daniel, who is, uh, who is known for, for doing insect flight biomechanics. And he also does some, 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 some muscle biophysics and Nathan Kutz in, uh, in applied math. And you mentioned a, a little bit about, you know, like how life in parallel happens with science. And so leading up to like this part in your career, do you, did you feel there were challenges um, because of your identity and also like given the number of women who generally are in math and, you know, more quantitative fields um, or were there other challenges and how did you, how do you overcome them? There were, sure, there were challenges. <laughs> my, my approach to a lot of the challenges has been, again, like not particularly deliberate. I think it probably benefited me at many different points in my career that I was just pretty, I was pretty oblivious to a lot of things. In retrospect, I noticed things were like, oh, maybe that was, that was, that was a little weird. But maybe that shouldn't have happened. Um, but at the time, I was like, okay, well, moving on, right? Like, I'm just very, I'm very practical and forward-looking. And so I'm constantly, instead of dwelling on what happened, thinking about what can happen next. Um, the other thing I really benefited from was I've been very fortunate to have had the pleasure of working with a variety of different mentors who were just, I think I just got really lucky. They were all really, really great people and great mentors in addition to being excellent scientists. Um, so for example, my PhD advisor, Carlos, was saying he was just, I don't, yeah, he just, I mean, I definitely was not as productive for a while after I had a child and he was just very understanding and supportive. And like, I never felt like, I never felt like he treated me any less. He treated me differently, but not any less after I had kids and he just kind of worked around it. Um, same thing with every, all of my, my postdoc mentors, right? It was just like, okay, well, all right, thanks for telling us, like, we'll work with it. You know, like, well, that was always their strategy, um, and approach to, to, to the, to the, to the, to the idea that, you know, me as well as them and all scientists, we're, we're people too. And we have things that happen in our lives that are associated with being human and <laughs> being alive and having families and friends and things that happen that are in our science. And so sort of embrace, and I, I try to do that myself now very much following their example as a mentor. I feel like I try to treat everyone I, I work with, um, my students and postdocs and collaborators, all of them as people and just think, okay, like let's, let's get to know each other as people also. Um, in, if we're gonna be spending all this time together, we might as well get to know each other, right? And I want my, my, the people in my lab, especially to feel comfortable if they want to share with me things that are going on in their lives that are not their science. Um, because I recognize that just like when I was having kids and <laughs> couldn't do experiments for a while, um, that those things are relevant, right? And if we just don't talk about it, then what may appear like, oh, how like this person isn't, well, how come they haven't gotten their research done, right? It's more like, oh, you, oh, you're, you're maybe you have a family member who's sick, you know, maybe you like, there's some reason very good reason that you are not as focused on research as as you would like to be right now. And then that's okay. And then we can work with that. Well, like I'd very much benefited from, from my mentors doing that for me. You started your own lab in 2014. And so 
how have your research interests, your lab's interests, how has it evolved, and what is what are your lab's current interests yeah. like over the last 10 oh years? Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of different things, like a lot of different things. I think um, I sometimes tell my lab that I have, um, this, is, this is terrible, it's not a great, it's not a great characteristic. I have shiny object syndrome. Um, as a theorist, because we don't have to actually take care of experiments, we don't have to build rigs, we're not really restricted to working on one thing. And so we don't work on one thing, we don't work on two things, we work on like 10 different things. Um, sometimes I feel like my lab meetings give everyone intellectual whiplash. Because um, we do these we do these mini presentations where everyone gets exactly one slide and then we just go through them in a random order during lab meeting and these lab meetings are like every single couple of minutes we're talking about something completely different um, and I love it like I love it but it is just, just a lot of it's a lot of different things um, and the different topics they come from you know sometimes it's just a collaborator and then we start talking it's an idea that gets stuck in my head sometimes it's a student or a postdoc who come to me and saying oh i have this data set and but my 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 experimental mentor um is not as quantitative um as i i would as quantitative to, to advise me on the analysis i want to do will you co-advise me so i do that a lot as well and so the things just kind of grow and they build and you know, there's things I've worked on a lot where they have a series of papers on the same subject. There are other things where it's like we just write one paper and then, you know, that student moves on and graduates or whatever. And then we we do something else. You know, it's just a bunch of different things. And so I am really interested in the brain and behavior and the relationships between brain and behavior. And I particularly like it if that exploration involves mathematical models. Um, yeah. So that involves a lot of things. And I usually also really like natural behavior, like thinking about the context of how the brain evolved um, in that particular organism to control the behaviors that that organism is really good at. So I like studying what brains do do rather than what they can do um, when I prescribe them to do so in, in something that I invented, right? Um, so I like, I like naturalistic data of all kinds and I like big data. And that's pretty much it, right? Like we work on we work on a lot of different systems, um, literally everything between insects and humans. That's that's very cool. It's the first time I've heard intellectual flash, but in a very cool context. Um, and how would you describe um, like your mentorship style, or what is what has just been the most rewarding thing for you in the last ten years as a mentor and as a PI? I really have thought about this quite a bit, so I'm glad you asked the question. Um, I think my impact as a member of the community is more in the people, the individuals that I mentor and or teach. Um, and that, of course, I love the science. I love talking about the science. I feel good about the scientific discoveries that we have made. Um, but I feel better about the that I can help people on their path to doing whatever it is that they do next. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's, that's my mentorship philosophy. I like getting to know people and I knowing what it is that they want to do. Right. And I see my job, my only job as a mentor is to help them do that thing. Um, or sometimes help them figure out what that thing is. Right. That very much is, is a part of it as well. And so it's, you know, for different people, that means very different things. So I don't have, I don't have a lot of like I mean, I have some structure in my mentorship style, but I feel like I try to meet everyone where they're at. 
And uh, for some people, it's like, I'm just not the right mentor for them. <laughs> and then I help them find a different mentor who, who is a good fit for, for their interests and for their expertise and where they want to go. But if I feel like I'm a close enough fit, or at least to be a part of their mentorship team, oftentimes it's a team, right? It's like they have me as a computational mentor. They have another person who has experimental expertise, right? Well, whatever it is they need, I help them find it. Um, and then I tell them, look, this is, this is your life. This is your career, right? You tell me when you need me and I'll try to, I'll try to do that if that's within my bandwidth and my power and I can help them figure out what that is. Right. And so a lot of the times it's not necessarily that I'm helping them solve a problem. I see my role as, um, as, as a mentor and as a facilitator, right. I don't, sometimes I, I would rather that I would help them think about a problem to figure out how they would solve it rather than necessarily solving it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of career mentorship and kind of career trajectory development type activities. Like we often have lab meetings where we talk about, okay, like I basically make everyone have a CV. If you don't have a CV, you write one. If you have a, if you have a CV, but you haven't updated it in a while, update it. And then I make them all uploaded. <laughs> and then we all go through them together and we tear them apart in front of each other in a friendly way, right? Because it's really good for everyone to have an academic CV that they can use to apply for the next thing, the next job, the fellowship, um, to get into the thing that they want to next, right? We do, we talk about like, how grants work. I answer all their questions. As far as I can tell, we, I make everyone make their personal website because you should have a website, right? Haven't made one yet. Do it for a lab meeting next week. Stuff like that. Those are really great ideas. It's really nice to like also like pull back the curtain and let people um, see what's important in academia in future. Yeah, that's how things work. <laughs> and I did not have a very good understanding of it when I was a graduate student. So I felt pretty strongly that that was something that I can, I can help teach graduate students, especially at that career stage, I think it's good for them um, to to start to understand the, I don't know, this, I'm not sure about the terminology. Some people call this the sausage making, like the, the unglamorous parts of science, right? How the science actually gets done. What What is going behind the curtains that makes it so that we can do all the things we need to do. And you are also a tutorial creator and lecturer for Neuromatch Academy, and you have um, this amazing video course on YouTube on data science for biologists. So just made a new one okay. that I haven't published yet. Okay, that's really good to know. That, that's awesome. So how do, you, um, how do you feel being at this intersection of like these different fields, especially mentoring and helping biologists who don't come with the computational background themselves and introducing them to um, to data science and you know high-dimensional high data analyses and things like that. Like I said earlier, I feel like my job as an educator is is such a core part of what I do. Um, and I can't I can't imagine doing my job without doing that aspect of it because I think it's just it's like I feel really good teaching a class especially a large class, especially if I put those videos on YouTube so that even more people around the world can watch them and learn from them if they so choose so that they have access to those types of materials. I mean, this part, I feel, I feel really good about having been a small part of Neuromatch Academy for that reason, because they've done such a great job increasing the accessibility of this kind of high quality training material um, around the world, is that that's like a huge multiplier in the impact that I can have as a scientist. Right. Um, so think about it. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to train that many graduate students in my life, in my career. Right. I teach a significantly larger number of graduates of undergraduate students and graduate students when I teach a course. 
And then if I make that those materials high quality enough that other people, again, anywhere around the world with an internet connection can have access to them, then that's just like, it's just a huge multiplier on my effort. For every one hour of effort I spend into doing that thing, it can translate into a huge number of people who are able to benefit and hopefully have that make some kind of even small difference in their lives and then them getting to wherever it is that they want to go next. Um, and so it's, the, the, the process is honestly, it's, it's, it's very time consuming. It's, it's somewhat painful at times. Um, and sometimes you feel like you're kind of yelling into a, an empty, an empty chasm because you don't get that feedback on these online courses. You don't have students nodding at you. You don't get the satisfaction of knowing you definitely help someone. Um, but but I think if it's done really well, it's one of the biggest things that we can do as a community to impact the future of not only science, but our society. Um, I feel really strongly that these computational skills um, in, in data science, how to deal with data, is it's like our modern version of computer skills. Right. So a few decades ago when modern computers were coming online and personal computers were not yet a thing, um, some people were like, oh, I, like, I, don't need to use, I don't need to learn how to use the computer. Very few people will know to use a computer. They can work with the computers. I'm going to keep doing my job the same way that I've been doing it. Well, they were wrong. right? In fact, computers are a basic foundational skill in doing almost anything in our society. And so everyone has to have basic computer literacy now. And so they teach it. They teach it earlier, earlier on, right? Like now the students in elementary school are routinely taught how to use a computer because you can't not know how to use a computer. I feel the same way about computational science at this point, that like these basic, basic um, data fluency skills are some things that even if you do not become a computer scientist later or you do not become a data scientist later, just knowing the basics of how to talk about it is is going to be involved in every aspect of science and society, right? Like I have students that I teach data science to, I'm telling them, look, like I don't, I know you're not, you're not going to do research later. Like you're going to med school, maybe you're, you'll, you'll become a small business owner, right? Like you're going to become a physical physician, uh, physician's assistant, whatever, whatever it is you want to do, right? You are probably going to get into a circumstance where you have to work with somebody who does code and you need to be able to talk to them so that you know what they're doing and you can ask them what you want. Right? Maybe you're going to be managing somebody who's a data scientist. You need to be able to work on this member of team where somebody else is a data scientist. This is just a part of how our world is headed. Um, same thing in science, obviously, right? Like even if you're not the one doing the fancy version of the coding, you need to be able to talk to somebody who can so that you know what they're doing and you can ask for what you need to analyze your data that you just collected. And so teaching those sorts of skills, I feel really, I feel really strongly about. And I think, I think we need to do more in terms of pushing that into the curriculum as a core part of the curriculum instead of as an option like it currently is. And there's a lot of different, um, different universities and programs that are doing a really good job with that. I think, we, I think that's great. And I think that we're definitely headed in the right direction. We just need to be doing it more. Mm -hmm. That's really, it's really good advice. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, especially early on in their career, will definitely uh, benefit from that mindset. Um, and in terms of um, talking about like advice and challenges, um, if you were to give an advice to your graduate school uh, self or when you were a postdoc, is there anything you would have wanted to do differently? Or, or is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners, especially about how their identity as a, as a woman in neuroscience could have impacted their trajectory? 
I'm pausing because I'm thinking about it. I think one thing I have been learning a lot about shockingly recently is how not just that the that the, the 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 world and our society and our scientific communities have been really biased in a lot of different ways but how biased i was myself even as a woman in science i think it's just absolutely baffling to me how many things that just i completely glossed over and didn't even notice at the time because i wasn't educated and i wasn't informed i wasn't looking for those types of biases. And in retrospect, it's like, wow, that was like, what happened there? You know, <laughs> like that was not okay. I like, I was like, oh, whatever at the time, it just didn't seem like it was weird. And there's so many of those things. And I think it's a really good trend in what I'm seeing now um, at universities and research institutions where there's just so many more resources and so much more awareness and how normal it is to talk about things we just didn't used to talk about. Um, and for everyone to be just really aware of what's okay and what's not, right? Because I think if you've never experienced, for I'm going to take a just a silly extreme example. If you've never had a mentor who actually, that sounds silly. If you never had a mentor who actually cared about you, you might think it's normal for you to just never talk to your mentor and for them to never answer your emails and like, oh, this is okay. I'm really independent, right? Like, like no, this is not. This is not okay. Like, they're not supposed to treat you like that right? Like you deserve better. Everyone does. And so it's, it's easy to just feel like that this is okay. And like, you know, you feel tough and like, oh, I can deal with it. You know, like I'm okay. I can, I can tough it through. I can be independent. I'll figure it out myself, even though I have no one to go to and I'm feeling lonely and no one's giving me any advice. Like that's not okay. Right. Or feeling like, you know, my mentor's treating me really differently than these other people. Maybe it's because I'm a woman and they're not, or it's like, oh, but that's just the way it is. You know, like there's all this mentality of that's just the way it is. And I, among everyone else, kind of just accepted it. It's like, this is just the way it is, right? And I'm just going to deal with it. And I, I feel like, I feel like I did that. I think everyone did that more. And I'm glad that we don't do that anymore nearly as much, that we're being a lot more aware of, like, we have to be we have to be kind to each other. We have to try to be good human beings. And then there are, there are, in fact, ways of doing that. And we should know that. And we should all know that we deserve better. And to know that we can ask for that when it's not happening at every career stage. And of course, those things change. Being in the more of the quantitative side of things, did you feel like you saw that there was a leaky pipeline during your time? Did you have female role models who are also interested in like similar things, or maybe it doesn't exactly have to be like what we do when we look for role models. So that's a, that's a, I mean, I actually never, I, I've never had an advisor who was female. And like I said, I've just been really lucky <laughs> in that the, I've always worked with people that I've worked really well with. And I felt like we're, we're kind people and good mentors, but I didn't have any female mentors, especially in computational specialties, because there just weren't as many of us, right? It's really great that there are more and more of us every year now, and I'm really happy to see that. But it's just kind of a numbers game, right? Um, and I do kind of feel like there are points I did feel like, oh, like, I don't really have a role model, right? And it did feel a little weird at the time to not feel like there weren't, there weren't 
any one particular person or even several people where I can look at them and say, okay, that they're, they're look, she's doing it right. I want to be like her when I'm older and more established. I guess that was, it was okay. I don't know. I don't feel like I didn't miss it. Right. It was just kind of a more of an intellectual exercise. I thought about it. I was like, oh, that's weird. I feel like some of my male colleagues around the same career stage did have that. They were like, okay, this, that person, they're cool, right? Like they're retired and they're still doing science of this really spectacular kind. That's what I want to be. I was like, oh, I didn't really have that. Um, and it, so it did make me think about how going forward, and of course it's going to take a very long time, right? That representation does matter. Um, and then just because I decided to do this without having seen an explicit version of like somebody I can picture myself being like that. I did it anyway. doesn't mean that that's what everyone is supposed to do. Right. We shouldn't, that shouldn't be the case. I think, I think people should be able to see themselves or at least different aspects of themselves in, in their, in their mentors and in, in other people who are in the community. And I think, I think again, like I'm, I'm optimistic that we're working towards that and that at least the change is in the right direction. Um, even as we sometimes feel like we would like the change to be happening faster, like that's the kind of the, um, the pessimistic version of it, which I don't disagree with, but there is an optimistic version, which is I've been really happy at lots of different scales seeing the change and that the change is going in the right direction. Yeah. I don't mean to be complacent. Like, I don't mean that, oh, we're done here. Everything's good. It's not, we should keep continue fighting. Um, but I, I am, I have been encouraged that I've seen so much change in the right direction. It's been amazing to capture the highlights of your scientific trajectory. Finally, we would like to get to know a little bit about you outside the lab. I, I've seen some of your amazing watercolor insect art, which I highly recommend our listeners to check out. But um, are there other hobbies or activities that you do to feel more relaxed and refreshed when you come back to work after a break? Yeah, I feel like I have... I have I have quiet hobbies sometimes. I'm, I'm I'm kind of loud. Like if you you know I don't know if you can tell by listening to me, but anyone's met me. Like I'm kind of loud. <laughs> um, but my hobbies are not like I don't I don't play any musical instruments or do anything performance or I so I so I paint yeah um, and uh, so I like I like doing that. I knit. I'm a very fast knitter. I like knitting in part because especially after I stopped doing experiments in the lab and I apparently I'm a theorist now. I like sometimes I go home and just want to make something with my hands. Um, so I like knitting. Um, you know, I like cooking a lot. I like food. So cooking is a part of, um, you know, my, my partner and I, we, we like cooking together a lot. We just like, you know, exploring and eating. And so that's a fun thing we do. Kids are like it too. So that's always fun to do it together. Um, it's a little miscellaneous outdoorsy activities. We do that. We do that quite a bit, um, especially in Seattle. Um, there's just so much nature very, very close by. Mm -hmm. We kind of combine that with a love of food too. It's almost like, okay, so let's have brunch. And then we'll go for a hike. And then we get really hungry. We'll come back and we'll eat that more. That sounds awesome. <laughs> what's, what's your favorite place to um, go on a hike near Seattle? There's just a lot of places. I'm, I'm like, um, I like optimizing the, um, like the driving to hiking ratio. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of spectacular hikes. Um, the ones we end up doing the most often there are the ones that are closest. Because <laughs> um, I don't like driving for longer than we actually go for, for, sure. for a walk. And so it's like, you know, within half an hour of Seattle, there's a lot of, there's a lot of beautiful hikes. And in the summer, you can just go after work. I mean, days are, the days last forever. And so, yeah, just being outside is good. I like walking a lot. Um, walk to work most days. 
Great. Thank you so much, Bing, for taking the time out and for sharing your amazing story with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's so fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for all your very insightful questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you.